Generations Church exists to glorify God in our community, to make disciples of Jesus, and to multiply churches so that the next generation is equipped to glorify God better than we did. Welcome to the Generations Church podcast. My name is Rob Samuelson. I'm an elder at Generations Church, and I'm joined by my friend and the lead pastor at Generations Church, Jeff Luddington. How you doing today, Jeff? Man, I'm good. I'm good. I, you know, we talked about, we joke about having, you know, two two subscribers, you know, my friend and your mom, and, and we joke about that. But uh, uh, I got to meet somebody. We said that, you know, we've been getting more and more sus- subscribers and, and, you know, not, you know, less joking. And, hey, we know we, we've been, it's been growing. And I, I got to meet one. I know you knew him ahead of time. But uh, shout out to Elijah Daigle, who is a student here at Valley Christian, who's been listening since the Heidelberg uh, guilt, grace, and gratitude series, and so got to meet someone who likes our podcast, who uh, you know isn't forced to love us like a friend or a mom, you know. And so that was really cool. Exactly. Yeah, I've known Elijah for a long time. He's a part of my Bible study here at the school, and so cool. Uh, even though I told everybody in the Bible study about our podcast, he's the only one who actually <laughs> listens to it. As far as some of the other kids have listened every once in a while, I think they use it to fall asleep at night. So perfect. Yep. So we are uh, in our series on questions from the classroom. You're teaching at the high school this year. I've been teaching at the high school for 13 years now. We've just compiled some questions. Yeah. And so we've actually got uh, a question about the Bible. Okay, good. Today. So we can talk about the Bible. I like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Every All once right. in a while, we've got to bring out the Bible. So here's the question. How can we trust that the Bible has been translated properly over the years? It's a great question. And in order to deal with translation or trustworthiness, um, I think a lot of the trust is built from uh, how we got the Bible to begin with, right? And and so it's important to remember that uh, we have an Old Testament, a New Testament, right? But we we think through the lens of a 21st century Christian, right? And how we get information, uh, an example for me, we have the internet, we have all kinds of information at our fingertips, you know, Bible apps, things like that. And yet, because we have so much access, uh, you know, we look around and, and many Christians are fairly unfamiliar with Scripture, right? And so that's because the way we have access to information today is Internet. That's our primary mode, right? Or, you know, whatever it might be, academia, Internet. Others didn't have that. So before the Internet, really, they had different ways of doing this oral tradition you know written things uh just in depth copying like monks copying scrolls over and over again just all kinds of things that we don't have today so we have to look backwards and recognize that people kept accurate detail of things differently than we do and so how do we get to where we are i think is the big question we can wrestle with today Exactly. So we've got, looking at at authorship, looking at authenticity, let's just start with the Old Testament. So how did we get the Old Testament that we know today? All right. So page one, go back to, well, okay, maybe you've got some maps in a, a, yeah. So, okay. So the Old Testament uh, was handed down mostly by oral tradition. There was some writing. Uh, There's some great passages, and even God tells Moses, hey, write this down. Like, there's a way to do that. Um, But it wasn't the main way and the idea here in the old testament and this is true long up until you know the reformation right uh lots of people didn't read and write it was the wealthy or the educated today it's really hard to get through life without reading and writing but then you could and you could actually be very intelligent 
but it was oral tradition. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, if I said a rose by any other name would still smell just as sweet, which I may have butchered the, <laughs> the, the exact words there, but, or, you know, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore out there, Romeo, and I asked you who said that, it would be what? Shakespeare. Okay, Shakespeare. So then the question becomes, how do we know that, or how do we trust that, right? And the answer is odd. We think we have those written copies, but we don't. Shakespeare didn't write anything down. We have a copy of his signature, but we don't have a copy of any of his plays. And I looked this up this morning. It wasn't until seven years after he died. He lived in the mid to late 16th century, and it wasn't until the early 17th century, seven years after he died, that two friends of his wrote down 36 manuscripts. 18 of them had not been performed yet. And so they wrote them down, put them in a little folio, and we accept that it's true. <clears throat> Now, it probably is true, right? I'm not suggesting it's not. We have more proof for the Bible than we do of Shakespeare, and yet nobody really questions that Shakespeare wrote it. Oral tradition, they would memorize a play, they would perform the play, they would pass it off verbatim. And that had been the tradition for thousands of years. And so we got most of the Old Testament, some writings, but very little. We got most of it handed down by cultures repeating them verbatim over and over and over again. Kind of think like kids on the radio who know songs, right? They know every word and, you know, and they're accurate. Great, so even with that, even with knowing that it's accurate, uh, there are still some passages in the Old Testament that are, are highly contested. People read them and say, wait a minute, this could not have happened, this could not have been written when you claim it was written. Sure. Because, uh, just say, for example, Isaiah 53, right. right? Written, we would say, way before the time of Jesus, and yet it so well describes the crucifixion right. that it's hard to believe it was written before it actually happened. Uh, so here's, here's just a little bit of Isaiah 53. There's more to it than this, but uh, starting with verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Yeah. So Isaiah 52 and 53 uh, are, are this graphic portrayal of, uh, of the death of Christ, especially. And then it, it, it does get into the resurrection. It talks about the, uh, the suffering, the affliction, things like that. Uh, but even says, you know, it begins with the passage you read, uh, you know, who has believed what he's heard from us, right? the common way of passing on a message was, was by hearing. And so God spoke to Isaiah. Isaiah communicates this message. Isaiah is an odd book, an amazing one. I think this passage is probably one of my uh, deepest uh, proofs or convictions of the validity of the Old Testament. Because what happens is God gives this to Isaiah. Isaiah begins to tell the people. The people won't listen to him, and so he stops telling the people. He teaches disciples, and then roughly 100 years later, as they're coming out of Persia, they open up what, what Isaiah had said earlier and then give that to him. So that's you know, roughly 800 years before Jesus, Isaiah lives, and then you know, a, a, 
about 120 years in the middle of those writings before it comes out again. And then his, uh, his scripture hit the whole book of Isaiah is copied and copied and copied and handed down, and then it's lost and buried. Uh, we keep it, the tradition keeps it, but then fast forward to the 20th century, and academic, more liberal academics, but academic theologians began to just read this over and over. There's like, no way. This is so graphic, so clear about the, the crucifixion. There's no way it could have been written ahead of time. And it stands in contrast to many of the reigning, ruling images of the Messiah. But then in, 19, in the 1940s and the 1950s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, or the Qumran tablets. And they had been from caves that collapsed about 350 years before Jesus was born. So these copies, which remind us it doesn't have to be the original, these copies are buried 350 years before Jesus is alive, and then they're found almost 2,000 years after Jesus lives and is crucified, dies, and resurrects. And so what we get is God's word given to God's leaders like Isaiah, trusted people, prophets in the Old Testament, and then those words are cared for by God. He's the author. Yes, it goes through human authors as well, but God is the ultimate author. And then he authenticates those by telling the future. He hands them down. He superintends them. He protects, guards them, right? Keeps them for us. So every once in a while, we remember how amazing God is that we have intact scripture today. Okay, so looking at the Old Testament, Christians have accepted what Jews had originally said, these are right. the words of God, um, sacred writings, and so we've accepted those. Um, but when you get to the New Testament, right, yep. obviously not accepted by Judaism. So how did they decide at that point? How do we look at that and say these are written by God, but still inspired by, or written by man, still inspired by God? Yeah, fair enough. And, and so uh, what we have is uh, the the collection of Jewish writings, what I would call the Old Testament, they might call the Tanakh or the Torah, depending on their tradition, right? Uh, what they had was put together roughly 400 years before Christ. In fact, it was, we'll call it canonized, that's a New Testament term, but it was put together and completed, and then even translated into the modern Greek of the day, Koine Greek, about 200 years before Jesus was born, in, in a translation called the Septuagint, right? And so Judaism had their sacred text, and Christianity is born out of Judaism, right? It's the forerunner, you know, the Judaism is a forerunner there that brings us Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. And so uh, those texts carry on. Uh, Jesus used them. He quoted them. So we agree on what those were. And then the New Testament, right? There's some interesting language. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. And so as communication is changing, it's becoming more common to have writing and reading. Instead of big stone tablets, now you have parchment, you know, and you have more people that can read and, and write. And so Paul mentions, hey, listen, our traditions, and tradition's an interesting word, uh, paradosis, right? That which is handed down is the definition of paradosis, right? The traditions, the teaching we hand down to you, right? Uh, paradidomai, same as there's a kind of a, a noun and a verb form there. Right, to give into the hands of another, right? To tradition something to somebody or deliver it to them is to give them the whole teaching without bias, without anything missing. And so he says, either by spoken word or by our letter. To the church in Corinth, he says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So there was this process 
of apostolic teaching being handed off. Everybody, you know, is pretty familiar with this verse, like Acts 2.42, right? As they gathered together, they met in the temple, and then day by day, they gathered together in the houses. And one of the things it says they studied was the apostles' teaching, right? So there was this understanding that we have a Jewish tradition, sacred writings handed off by the prophets, and now the New Testament is being brought about by the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, right? Those who are sent by Jesus with the message of the church. And so canonicity, the rule for the New Testament, as it was completed and validated by the church for hundreds of years, they measured and, and uh, you know, tested it. And there was three things. One, it had to have an apostolic author. So an apostle had to be an author. So Paul or Peter, John, right? And then it had to be widely accepted by the early church. And so the early church, kind of think if I call you on the phone, I know we've got caller ID now, but you know my voice. If we talk on the phone, you know who I am. If you read something I wrote, you'd be familiar with it. We do a lot of stuff together. It was that. The early church knew their leadership, right? They knew what they were writing, what they were saying. And then the third mark of canonicity, so apostolic authorship, acceptance by the early church. And then the third thing was agreement with the Old Testament. Right? So it had to agree with all those writings, the 39 writings of the Old Testament. And so it couldn't bring new you know, doctrine, couldn't you know, some crazy thing out of left field. It all had to agree, which is a miracle all in itself. Right? So with those three things, the early church and the second generation of the church, they took those writings and they whittled those down to the books that you and I have, the 27 books of the New Testament. Great. So if we look at that and we say, okay, these are authentic, right? These are the books that were accepted, this is the canon, then going back to the original question, right? What we have today are translations from different languages. If we don't know the original languages, if we can't go back and check word for word, how can we trust that the Bible has been translated properly over all the years that it's been done? Yeah, that's great. And, and so uh, very few people within Christianity, and, and even we ask that question right, with a very 21st century American mind, right, because in America we can learn different languages, we can study ancient things, we can go back to stuff. Uh, that doesn't mean most Christians will. In fact, you know, 99 point whatever percent of Christians won't learn Koine Greek, Hebrew, uh, Aramaic, or Chaldee, or anything like that, right? So um, how do, so we, so we rely on translations. But if you live in another country, uh, especially third world, second world, they're not even asking questions about that. Like, there's just, man, they don't have anything in their original language necessarily like this. And so how do we trust it? Uh, there's something comforting for me uh, that Jesus quoted a translation. I mentioned earlier that the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible was translated into the modern language of the day, 200 BC, the Septuagint. Septuagint was 70 scholars, Jewish scholars, that took the, the, the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, and they translated into Koine Greek, the modern international language of the day. And so Jesus, when he was in the temple, would read from the Hebrew, uh, from the Hebrew letters. And, you know, like when he quotes Isaiah, he's reading the scriptures, he's reading it in that original language. But when he's quoting it and teaching, he's known to have quoted the Septuagint. And it's a, it's an academic thing. You have to be a language major to notice the differences, but it is well accepted that he quoted the Septuagint. So Paul writes to Second Tim or in Second Timothy to his, men uh, his mentee, if you will, his disciple Timothy, he says, listen, uh, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from what you've learned and how from child you've been acquainted with the sacred writings and are able to make, for, uh, make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? So if God breathes it out and we get it, we capture it, right? Then it's God's word, not our word. And it's written down, it's, it's repeated, it's memorized. And then modern day, it has to be translated. And so uh, what we have is two major schools of translation. Dynamic equivalent, literal equivalent. I'll use two examples, the ESV and the NIV. So the English Standard Version is what we use, typically what we quote on this podcast, what I teach from on Sundays, and it's called a literal equivalent. It's as best as it can be a word-for-word translation. A dynamic equivalent is a paraphrase. It's a thought-for-thought translation. So if I say a sentence, you know, Rob kicked the red ball, you know, then it takes the whole sentence and it repeats the idea, right? It kind of paraphrases it, sends it back. Otherwise, you're trying to say, okay, Rob, translate, Rob. Okay, kick, translate, kick. Okay, so you're trying to do word for word versus thought for thought. There's a problem in this. There's no such thing as word for word translation. So literal equivalent has to factor in idioms and and odd things that we say. Like I thought of one earlier. Uh, When I say something is cool, or I go, oh, that was hot, right? Cool and hot are like antonyms. They're opposites, right? But I'm actually saying I like something by using both terms, right? Oh, that podcast was fire, right? Oh, you know, it's just it, we say things that actually are idioms that don't naturally translate. So somebody in another language right now wouldn't be able to translate it hot or cool or fire or whatever. They would have to translate the idioms. And so what we have today is like the Septuagint, lots of scholars will get together from different traditions. Reform, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, you know, you know, Orthodox, whatever, they'll get together and they which helps weed out the bias. That's why they do it in groups of scholars and translate into the modern language. Right? And that's the same reason we don't use the King James Version, because that was translated into King James English, which we don't use anymore, and so many words have changed. And so dynamic equivalent, literal equivalent, those are the translations, uh, the translational schools, and we get them into our modern day language, we're comforted by the fact that even Jesus quoted a translation. And so we're reminded, if God's the author, and if God is caring for us, then God's gonna get us a translation that's good, right? And so that gives us the trust. It's trust in God, not trust in Paul. It's trust in God, not trust in a translator. Great, and I've got one more question. We're just gonna wrap up with this. I know we talked about this earlier. It's kind of a short answer on this one, but one of the students did ask this along with this other question. is the Bible that we have, is it complete? Is there any possibility that any books are missing or were left out either on purpose or just looked over? So right. how would you answer that student? So is the Bible complete? Yes. Is there any possibility things are left in, missing or left out? Uh, no. And it's the same idea. I don't trust the authors, the translators, the canonizers as much as I trust God. Right? That God is superintending his word to get it to us. Uh, there's some interesting things, and we're not going to go into a lot of them today, but some intertestamental books, things that happen in between Malachi and uh, what we kind of think of as the birth and life of Jesus that we see in the Gospels, but there were letters written before the Gospels, but before that happens. Um, and Judaism didn't accept the intertestamental books, even though they were written by Jewish authors. Christianity in the early church didn't accept them. Um, they accepted them as uh, some things called like deuterocanonical. They were second canon of books. And things like the Shepherd of Hermas or Clement of Rome. There's some really good writings out there that are Christian writings that are, you know, very accurate and good, but they didn't fit canonicity. They weren't written by an apostle. They were written by a disciple of an apostle. And so the early church weeded those out, and Judaism weeded out the intertestamental books. And so 
yeah, the Roman Catholic Church and others have added books in the middle called Intertestamental or Apocrypha, and those were neither accepted by Judaism, still aren't, or Christianity. And so for us, yes, we have all that we need, uh, and you can read those other things. They just shouldn't give them the authority that Scripture has. Yep, yeah, and we'll just wrap it up there. Um, as you were saying, there's plenty of things out there to read that are helpful. Yeah. But, yeah, what is, what is canon, what has authority from God, uh, is above all those other things. So we're going to wrap it up. We want to thank you for listening. Uh, again, wherever you uh, cast your pods, as Vinny <laughs> says, um, make sure and, and, and subscribe. Give us a like. Give us a share. Uh, share this with your friends. Talk it over with your kids. And uh, hopefully you'll continue to listen. And if you have questions you'd like us to address, the email is questions at generations.email. We release a new one on Tuesday, and we hope you'll join us then. God bless you this week. information, visit our website at ginfamily.church, G-E-N family.church. You can also follow our social media accounts at ginfamilychurch.